Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc. through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome back to Dermalogs, Season 5. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. Glad to be back for another fun and interesting season. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside of your centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that by helping you, the dermatology residents, get answers from leading experts across the country. This season, we're taking a deep dive into complex medical dermatology. I'll be talking to a bunch of different experts on how they diagnose and treat complex cases and conditions. We're recording today's episode at the CDA Annual Conference in Toronto. I'm thrilled to be welcoming Dr. Max Souter. Dr. Souter is an assistant professor and the Oncodermatology Fellowship Director at the University of Toronto. He's also an oncodermatologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, and he practices at the Toronto Dermatology Centre where he's the research director and director of the Pigmented Lesion Clinic. Welcome to Dermalogs, Max, live in person. Thank you for having me. I've been wanting to talk about this topic for quite a while, and I think I couldn't think of a better person to do it um, than you. And and that's You've really... You've been itching to talk about this, huh? <laughs> okay, <laughs> yes, correct. What I'd like to talk about is cutaneous toxicities. Um, you know, certainly in my practice, I've been seeing this more and more, especially for the last couple of years, where I think just all of these cancer therapeutics have really mushroomed and there's so many options and we end up seeing so many of the potential side effects that people have. So, and I know that you have a special interest in this area. Yeah. You've hit the nail on the head. So there's been a paradigm shift in the management of cancers in general, and it actually started with melanoma. Melanoma was the first indication for immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, ipilimumab was mm-hmm. approved first. That's a CTLA-4 inhibitor. There's also PD-1 inhibitors, which are much more frequently used, and then PDL one inhibitors. And while it started in melanoma, stage 4 metastatic melanoma, it's, as you said, mushroomed. Uh, it's just exploded. Literally every single solid tumor has an indication for immunotherapy. Hematologic malignancies have uh, an indication. And on top of that, earlier and earlier stages. So last year, uh, PD-1 inhibitors were approved for stage 2B and 2C melanoma. Mm -hmm. These are people that don't have any cancer in their body, period. And they're getting approved for immunotherapy in order to prevent recurrence of disease. So we're seeing more indications, earlier indications, and on top of that, a growing population um, with increased incidence in, in cancer. So you you know have this perfect storm of, at this point in time, there's never been more people on immunotherapies than there has been before, and it's just expanding. And listen, I think that's wild, and I think it's, it's also interesting when I think back to when I started practice and patients that had stage 4 melanoma, you were like, well, you know, call your loved ones because that's, right. that's where they were at, and now yep. you're seeing these people years yep. after diagnosis, which, I mean, yep. that's a whole other topic that we could, yep. you know, probably do an actual podcast yep. on. Yeah. Thinking about, um, and you've mentioned a couple things that we see regularly, but, but thinking about some of these immunotherapies and their cutaneous toxicities to sort of focus down for the purposes of this podcast, what do you, do you think it makes sense to kind of divide them up and go, okay, I'm going to think about just Pembro or, you know, how do you kind of approach it as a general topic? What makes sense to yeah. you? 
So it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think for simplicity's sake and for, you know, practicality, it's useful actually to categorize immune checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapies um, altogether because we basically see very similar reactions. Now, with that said, I'm categorizing the three different mechanisms, CTLA-4 inhibitors, PD-1 inhibitors, PD-L1 inhibitors, all together. Mm -hmm. But there are newer and newer targets. Some of them are approved. Some of them are in clinical trials right now um, that have the same concept, but a slightly different target on the T cell or within the body's immune system that may create slightly different reactions. But with that said, for the simplicity of this discussion, let's just categorize all immune checkpoint inhibitors together. So what do we see? Um, the five main clinically significant reactions that we see that we would get consulted on as a dermatologist would be paritis without primary cutaneous skin findings, eczematous eruptions, lichenoid eruptions, psoriasiform eruptions, um, and then there's, uh, you know, autoimmune blistering conditions, particularly bullous pemphigoid um, and um, erosive oral lichen planus could kind of be categorized together. Okay. Thankfully, we don't see a lot of severe cutaneous adverse reactions with these medications, scars like mm -hmm. SJS, TEN, um, AJEP, um, and... Um, uh, or dress, we, we generally don't see those, but there is a unique entity, which we were talking about earlier, called progressive immune-related mucocutaneous eruption, or PERM, um, that very much mimics uh, SJSTEN, but more of a slow-rolling kind of SJSTEN, where the patients aren't as sick. I wanna come back to that later, but I think maybe we could talk about the more common presentations first. So. Like, here's the way I think about it. You know, we get a lot of referrals from our oncology um, colleagues in Halifax, and they'll say, you know, this patient has a rash and they're on pembrolizumab. And so we'll see them quickly. And then I tend to see the person do the usual history physical, et cetera, try to figure out the timing of when they've had the treatment to when this eruption's happening. But um, do, you, do you approach it in a different way? And, and like, to that end, if I don't see one of these clear patterns, could it still be related or, you know, how do you decide that? So the short answer is everything can be related. Okay. And generally speaking, timing is all over the place right. with these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah. So for example, tomorrow I'm going to present a case of a patient that had 17 cycles of simipumab, which is every three weeks that was doing just fine until he got rip roaring eczematous eruption 17 cycles in. Okay. So, you know, throw out the door, the typical, you start a medication and two to three weeks later, you're looking for um, a reaction. Um, some of them can be early, mm -hmm. particularly with paritis. Mm -hmm. Some of them can be later. So with bullous pemphigoid, it's uh, on average, there's been case series showing that it's after about 10 or 11 months okay. um, that you'll develop bullous pemphigoid. Um, and so it's really all over the place. In addition to that, it also can be after they've finished immunotherapy. So myself and other oncodermatologists, we generally have come to the conclusion that anything within 12 months of finishing immunotherapy can still be related back to immunotherapy. And I'll give you a very personal example. Um, 
a family member of mine was treated for stage three melanoma Mm -hmm. with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, finished their year of adjuvant treatment, and then 10 months after finishing their year, so they finished it in April, and in February, they developed rip-roaring pruritus with sores all over the place. Really? Biopsy-proven bullous pemphigoid related to Uh, immunotherapy. Very interesting. I definitely want to talk a little bit about the bullous pemphigoid piece after because I find like that is particularly challenging to treat. Definitely. But if we can back up a little bit, something that you said I think was interesting, which is, you know, often the pruritus may come first. Do you find that the pruritus is its own, like, are there people that just stick with pruritus or are there people that pruritus precedes their eczematous presentation or whatever? Or in your case, I guess, or your family member's case, maybe just that, you know, pemphigoid came yeah. later. Um, it's a mix. Okay. There are definitely patients that are just pure pruritus. You look at them, not very impressive. Anytime I see in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitors, pruritus out of proportion Mm -hmm. to what I'm seeing on their skin, bullous pemphigoid is always at the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm biopsying them, uh, even if there's not much, DIF, IIF Mm -hmm. on them, even though our IIF isn't that great. Um, But there's a subset of patients that will just be pruritus on its own. Okay. There's other people that may start with pruritus that will go on to eventually develop an exhibitus reaction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of classic in keeping, you know, the itch that rashes. Um, And, you know, it's hard to differentiate, you know, what came first, but it does open up some therapeutic possibilities if they do develop eczema. Right. And I guess this becomes a challenge in that it's not the classic timing of a drug eruption. You can't just go, well, we're going to, you know, and and I don't even think you can know if it's going to happen with the next cycle or consistently. What's your general, um, workup when you see one of these people, like, let's say they come in, they're on a checkpoint inhibitor and they have an exhibitus eruption and they have no personal history of eczema. So you're kind of suspecting it. Like, what do you do in terms of like, do you do consistent blood work on everybody? Do you biopsy everybody? Yeah. How do you approach the workup piece? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think even before I answer that, you brought up a very good point that it's not like these are medications where you can just stop and the mm-hmm. eruption goes away. Mm-hmm. I often explain it to patients as though it's as if you're pushing a snowball down a hill. Mm-hmm. Once you stop pushing, it's still rolling. And it keeps on rolling until it gets to the bottom of the hill. Mm-hmm. So that's why, again, myself and my colleagues, we generally term anything that happens even 12 months, up to 12 months after finishing immunotherapy as related to immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to the workup, um, myself, um, Dr. Claveau, Dr. Butler, Dr. Lind, um, Dr. Um, Heihel, um, we all got together and, um, created, you know, some algorithms, some basic algorithms under this banner called CASMO, mm-hmm. um, to look at how you manage these patients, no matter what the therapy is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just basic tenants. Um, number one, you know, if you have the opportunity to interact with these patients before they go through any type of cancer intervention, you can basically tell them that their skin is going to be assaulted mm-hmm. by whatever the cancer intervention it is. It mm-hmm. generally happens in you know a significant portion of patients. So I often am counseling them um, as if they are um, people with 
atopic dermatitis. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. going over, you know, very simple hygiene measures, using hypoallergenic products, um, you know, going over appropriate soaps and moisturizers to use. Mm -hmm. Then the intervention happens. And if they get a skin toxicity, what's my workup? First and foremost, you want to make sure that it's not a severe cutaneous adverse reaction. Right. And I think as dermatologists, we all know, you know, the danger signs. Right. You're looking for skin pain rather than itch. You're looking for fever associated with the rash. You're looking for any detachment of uh, the skin, mucous membrane involvement. Um, and then, you know, the abnormal labs, that's challenging mm -hmm. because you most likely have someone with metastatic disease, whatever, you know, their primary site is, um, that may have effect on their organs. Do exactly. they have liver mets? Yeah. Do they have baseline, you know, LFT abnormalities, yeah. you know? Um, so I always look at that and where I am primarily managing these, these, uh, which is at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, these patients are extensively worked up from medical oncology to begin with. So, you know, I'm generally not ordering right. that much it's in terms of blood much. work because okay. I have basically everything. The only thing that I'm adding is, again, if there's itch out of proportion, mm -hmm. is um, uh, yeah, yeah. IIF. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, then with regards to biopsy, you know, if from a morphologic standpoint, it's pretty clear cut. I'm often not biopsying. Now, I do find that sometimes the psoriasiform presentations can be more guttate in nature mm -hmm. and sometimes can have less scale than you would expect. And okay. so sometimes it can be challenging to differentiate the lichenoid reactions from the guttate psoriasis reactions. Now, the general principle that I use for all of these is start with topicals. Okay. And yes. so when you start with topicals and you have a clear cut potentially, or you're debating between, you know, is this guttate psoriasis, is this lichenoid? I'm starting with my topicals. I may not necessarily need to biopsy if I can control them with topicals. If I can't, then I biopsy to help differentiate the next step that I'm going on. Now, do you find that there are any um, features on pathology that would lean you towards thinking? I mean, I guess we've already talked about this. So like if it's within the time capture of them being on the treatment, you're likely to think it's treatment related, yeah. but are there specific features on pathology that are going to push you towards thinking, well, yeah, this definitely is immunotherapy related, or are you going to see that more classic, you know, BP picture with positive DIF? And then you just use that, the history to yeah. kind of, like, I mean, when you're talking about BP, um, it's clear cut on the pathology, yeah. um, from a DIF and the H and E is just spongiosis with the eosinophils. Okay. Um, but then you also like, it's everything, you know, it's the history. It's looking at other drug culprits to make sure that they're not right. on something else that could be causing it. Um, it's, you know, looking at their presentation, looking at whether they had a pre-existing skin condition, because if they had pre-existing psoriasis, there's a 50% chance that they will flare their psoriasis on, uh, immunotherapy or greater. Now, anyone on immunotherapy has anywhere from a 40 to 60% chance of developing a skin reaction. So again, going back to our very first thing that we were talking about, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that are getting skin reactions on these treatments. Now, a lot of these people will be managed initially by their medical oncologists. Right. And there are a lot of medical oncologists that are excellent and they will 
use topicals mm -hmm. and they'll learn from us in terms of what topicals we're using. Um, and I myself have seen that in my practice um, at Princess Margaret, like when, before I started the phase one group would, you know, essentially be using hydrocortisone. And yeah. now every time I get a referral, you know, the patient's been on 0.1% betamethasone valerate. Mm -hmm. I'm like, great. Okay. Yeah. Now it's time for me to, to get involved. Um, however, if you look at the societal guidelines, if you look at NCCN guidelines, if you look at ASCO guidelines, if you look at ESMO guidelines with regards to management of immune toxicities, um, they group everything together. Mm -hmm. A rash yeah. is a rash is a rash for the most part. Right. And being oncologists, they need to grade them. Yeah. Because particularly if they're on a clinical trial, the clinical trial dictates if you're on, if you have such and such grade, this is what you need to do. The guidelines generally state that for grade two or higher, they require systemic um, steroids. Mm -hmm. However, the use of systemic steroids, we now have direct evidence that that decreases the effect of immunotherapy. So, um, you know, us as dermatologists, we can help with managing patients by keeping them on treatment and not reducing the efficacy of treatment by using topicals aggressively in the way in which we know, which other specialists can't. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also can manage these conditions in the way that we normally would, which generally isn't with the use of systemic steroids. We would not manage psoriasis with systemic steroids. We would not manage a lichenoid eruption with systemic steroids. We mm -hmm. wouldn't manage eczema, generally speaking, with systemic mm -hmm. steroids. Mm -hmm. So we have more sophisticated targeted tools that can lead to better outcomes. So I, I, this is why I want to specifically talk a little bit about the BP piece, because I think that, you know, tends to require a little bit more from systemic treatment. You're absolutely but, right. But what I do want to come back to is, is the idea. I mean, I think the thing we always think about skin as being a, um, like a, an innocent bystander that gets affected by a lot of, you know, older chemotherapeutic options because it's a high turnover organ. Um, and some people, you know, in the hematology world, you say, well, if you get, you know, graft versus host, you probably get a good graft versus tumor response. Can you apply that type of um, thinking to if you have a side effect or a cutaneous eruption from an immunotherapy, is it more likely that that immunotherapy is more effective on the tumor or does it matter? Yes. And do you know? It is. Okay. So you're absolutely correct. And like, that's a great analogy that you brought up. We have direct evidence. Okay. So we have direct evidence showing that if you have vitiligo from a CTLA-4 inhibitor, the people that get vitiligo have a higher um, progression, higher uh, duration of progression-free disease and higher overall survival than those that do not. Looking at that further, if you experience more than one immune-related adverse event, so skin rash is one mm -hmm. immune-related adverse event. If you get, and you can get inflammation of any organ, right? Because yeah. we're just activating the body's immune system. So you can get hypophysitis, you can get pneumonitis, you can get thyroiditis, you can get myocarditis, you can get colitis, you can get arthritis, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have more than one immune-related adverse events, then your probability of responding to that treatment is even greater than just having one and even greater than having none. I guess that's a silver lining of having a, you know, not that fun side effect. 
and, and I wonder if that, I do have a few patients who, for a variety of reasons, typically speaking, because of carditis or colitis that were grade three, four, had to end up stopping their immunotherapy, but they yep. still remain cancer-free. Yep. And it's probably because they had such a significant improvement yep. in the first place. Yep. That's, that's very interesting. And that actually shows the durability of these treatments, which we really haven't talked about. So, you know, yes, we have now, going back to your point about stage four melanoma, you know, prior to immunotherapy, the five-year overall survival rate for stage four melanoma was less than 5%. Mm-hmm. With immunotherapy, you're looking at five-year overall survival rate of 55%. That, that's, that's just yeah. wild. Yeah. And like, you know, for us as dermatologists, we hear oh, 55%, you know, response rate. Well, we can do a PASI 75 and like, you know, <laughs> that's like we nothing. Any, anything can, can do that, right? But in oncology... If you have a drug that moves the five-year overall survival rate by 5%, that's a blockbuster drug. Yeah. We're talking about a medication that has increased five-year overall survival rate by 50%. That's just And like, it's just, as I said, it's a paradigm shift. Now, on top of that, it's not just when you're on treatment. So, you know, you remember when we first started seeing the targeted therapies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the BRAF inhibitors as monotherapy. Mm-hmm. They would have these very impressive responses, but then at about the eight-month mark, everything comes back because mm-hmm. the tumor learns how to go around it. With these treatments, they're durable. So you have someone that experienced significant toxicity requiring discontinuation of the treatment, but they had a response. Most likely, their response is going to be a durable one, a complete response ongoing. Like that is really... Uh mind-boggling to be honest it's like science has come so far medicine's come so far i think that's wild and i i often will say things to patients like well you know the good news is this probably means you're having a good effect on your cancer so i'm glad to hear that i have 100 leading them down a garden path i I, I say (laughs) that exact same thing we'll be back to dermalogs after this brief message from the cda mark your calendars the 99th cda annual conference hosted by the canadian dermatology association is scheduled from june 26th to June 29, 2024, and it will take place in our nation's capital city, Ottawa. A well-established, leading conference by and for certified Canadian dermatologists, it offers top-tier education and patient advocacy. Find out more at dermatology.ca forward slash conference. And now, back to Dermalogs. What I want to think about are the ones that, you know, go beyond that yes you give the tub of betaderm it gets better they're smearing it on or they're not even really bothered by it because some people come in and yep. their oncologist goes oh my god this crazy eruption yep. they see me they're like i don't care yep. um and i just go okay well here's some cream and if you don't care and it's not affecting your quality of life carry on i do the exact same thing okay the people though and, and this is where i get into trouble more with the bp subtype mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they are not so simple to manage i mean bp in general is not particularly simple to manage. Same with some of the psoriasiforms. I've had a couple of patients that are like psoriasis-like or BP-like that you you do the topicals and they don't get better. And you do a little burst of steroid to hope that you'll settle it down. And then you're moving on to further treatments. And I think there's a two-part question that I have for you. Part one is um, how much do we want to have the patient finish their set number of rounds? So like IE, I always think of this as how can I best manage the patient without having to stop their immunotherapy? Mm-hmm. How do I get, how do we plow through mm-hmm. safely? So that's part one. And then part two is 
what is your preference in terms of like what you go to after steroid? Um, because to your point earlier, like it's not a great option and certainly not for the long term. And so I really try to put people two, three weeks, you know, with the blessing of, of, of oncology and then, and then move to other things of which I've had uh, variable success. Yeah. Yeah. No. And fair enough. Um, so there's a lot to unwrap there. Um, <laughs> first and foremost, every patient's different, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about, um, different tumors, different stages different responses, different oncologic teams. And the bottom line is um, you really, you you need to have an open line of communication with their oncologist in Mm -hmm. terms of what the treatment goals are, Mm -hmm. right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're on a phase one clinical trial and they've tried everything else and there's no more clinical trials coming down the path, like you're doing everything that you can to try and keep this patient on. If you have a patient that's completed 10 of 12 months of adjuvant treatment for stage three melanoma and currently has no evidence of disease, then, you know, it's a different discussion. Mm -hmm. Like, do you finish the last two months of the adjuvant treatment or do you just hope for the best? Call it. Yeah. You know, Um, so always important to have. Uh, open line of communication with the medical oncologist. Now, it's very easy for me to say that because I work in a multidisciplinary clinic and, you know, we just talk about these cases together Mm -hmm. or we talk about them at tumor board. Mm -hmm. Um, It's challenging in the Canadian healthcare system to get together and like literally just talk with other specialists. Mm -hmm. um, And that takes, you know, dedication outside of, you know, patient caring hours, but that's a whole other different topic. So there's that. Okay. Then if you want to get into the management. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, here, I'm going to come back to it. first. And I think for the residents, it's, it's really important to do the co-management piece. And if you're not in the same center to like pick up the phone yes. or like send a text or whatever. So I talk to my medical oncology colleagues regularly. Great. And I will say that when I go beyond prednisone or dex or whatever, that I always do it in conjunction with their blessing, because obviously different treatment options have different potential um, effects on the cancer itself, on the immune system in general, um, and on, on the way that they're trying to manage that patient. And I, and I think that, so I, I just don't think that can be, I think that needs to be really important point just yeah. to remind the residents. But now I want to talk about, you've got a, so one of my patients, okay. He's had, um, stage four melanoma. He's received nine, uh, cycles of Pembro on his second cycle or sorry, on his sixth cycle, he developed what looked a little bit urticarial. Okay. So we were kind of thinking it could be a bit of a pre-bolus phase at that time, treated him with topicals was okay. Next cycle started to develop a little bit more, a few little blisters, hands and feet in particular, yes. which is atypical compared to tip, you know, usual pemphigoid. Yeah. However, I do tend to see a lot of glove and stocking distribution of bolus pemphigoid with immune checkpoint. Inhibitors. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Versus, you know, and you have some patients with more classic BP that have it on their hands and feet, but like yep. bad, yep. gave him a little, little burst of steroid. He settled. And then, and then it just exploded after yep. his ninth cycle to the point that, you know, he's had the rest of his cycles been held mm-hmm. and I've moved down a road of other therapies, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> considering things like, um, IVIG, which I yep. gave him a round of, but then he had heart failure. So that was mm-hmm. problematic. Um, and then we considered, you know, mycophenolate, azathioprine, rituximab. Mm-hmm. It's currently well-managed right now on azathioprine, again, with the um, 
consent and approval and blessing of my oncology colleagues, but it's not ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So we're balancing his quality of life with his, the the amount of life he has left, you know, and then you kind of go, what is the right way to, yeah. So it's challenging because we don't have randomized control trials in Mm -hmm. this to tell us what's best practice. We don't even have, you know, enough data to tell us what will not affect the anti-cancer response. We have debates in the literature or in person as to what is safe and what is not safe. We have direct evidence that systemic steroids are not safe. Mm -hmm. However, with regards to bolus pemphigoid, I do agree that is out of, you know, the five most common presentations, that's the only one that you often Mm -hmm. need to use systemic steroids where it's appropriate. With regards to bolus pemphigoid, um, what I tend to do, as long as they're not within their first um, two cycles of immunotherapy, um, well, actually even before that, so I'll be aggressive with topicals, fine. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone is. We Mm -hmm. know that bolus pemphigoid can respond to topical clobetazole. Often doesn't. And often is very similar to your experience. The more cycles they go through, the more progressive it becomes. Mm -hmm. So then we need to move on to systemics. Um, I always try, especially when I'm in the process of working them up and waiting for the pathology to come back, I'll give them doxycycline and nicotinamide. Oh yeah, I should have mentioned that I did try that. Yeah. Failed. Yeah. Now, the one caveat with using a systemic antibiotic is that there is evidence that if you use it 30 days before initiation of immunotherapy um, and within 30 to 60 days after initiating immunotherapy, it changes the gut microbiome, which Mm. has effects on the body's immune system. Mm -hmm. And so it leads to decreased response. So we actually have some interesting data on that. So you really do want to try and avoid systemic steroids and also systemic antibiotics 30 days prior to initiation and 30 to 60 days after initiating. Okay. But in your case, they've been on it for a long time. So like, I'm not so hesitant with regards to using a systemic antibiotic. Often that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so then, you know, all the suggestions that you gave, I think are appropriate. You could consider methotrexate. I've managed patients on Mm -hmm. methotrexate. Um, we just have a patient that just relapsed with their bolus pemphigoid. That's probably more perineoplastic pemphigoid at this point, Mm. um, that initially presented from immunotherapy. I cleared him, managed him for a year on methotrexate, tapered him off of it. And now two years later, he's presenting again with bolus pemphigoid. Um, I've tried mycophenolate mofetil, uh, haven't had great success with it. I would be hesitant with um, azathioprine based on the immunosuppression and based on the squamous cells that we see mm-hmm. from it, which is probably a result of direct T cell inhibition. Um, so like, me- I don't have any direct evidence for it, but mechanistically, you know, if they were to continue their immunotherapy, mm-hmm. um, I would worry that that would inhibit the response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and IVIG I, I've thought about, but like it is a lot of volume for, for patients. Um, so where do I go to next? Um, I like biologic molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried Zolair. I've had, sorry, omalizumab, mm-hmm. scratch that, omalizumab. <laughs> uh, I've tried omalizumab. Uh, I have not had great success with it in the setting of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Okay. Um, in the U S I used rituximab mm-hmm. very successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's acting on the B cells 
and it's not acting on the T cells. So I've had patients in the US that I've just knocked out their B cells with rituximab. They've gone right back on to the immune, immunotherapy and had no issue with rechallenging. Mm-hmm. In Canada, um, that's a challenge to get from an access standpoint, um, although our medical oncologists may have a little more ease of getting it. Um, but what I have used and what we're about to publish with myself and Dr. Fournier um, is the use of dupilumab mm-hmm. um, in the setting of immune checkpoint uh, inhibitor-induced bolus pemphigoid. I've also used it for eczematous eruptions in that setting. I've also used it for chronic pruritus in that setting. Um, and, you know, there are scattered case reports and case series of the use of dupilumab um, in this setting. Um, and there's actually some research showing that IL-4 and 13 inhibition can actually potentiate immunotherapy. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I feel very comfortable with that, and I've had some decent success with that. I mean, I think that'll be interesting. Incidentally, my patient that I gave IVIG to did work. It's just that because yeah. he has heart failure. And the reason for not selecting rituximab in that case, because actually haven't had too much access issues off-label that companies have been very um, generous, uh, is that his his longevity of his particular life is probably not long enough to allow the rituximab to really kick in. Um, because I've had a slower experience with the rituximab for bolus conditions. So yeah. you're looking at, you know, two months before peak effect. And so for him, it was, he couldn't stand, he couldn't use his hands. Um, and then sometimes you're challenged. No, it's, it's an easier in some I use, ways. I use the hematologic dosing for that. Four seventy five. So the weekly dosing yeah. for four. That might've been more effective, mm-hmm. but so yeah, I, I mean, I think Doopy is also slow. Yeah. Doopy is probably slower than rituximab. Well, that, see, that's what I was going to get to. So I think part of the part of the issue with certain patients, so my patients, for example, is like we don't really have two months to wait um, to improve his quality yeah. of life. And so there you need to use steroids yeah. for bridging. Yes. But the idea is get them off steroids as quickly as you can. Absolutely. And f- unfortunately for him, without the concern, with the long-term concern of squames and other things, and he's not going back on the treatment, is yeah. it, it made sense and, sure. and AIDS is working. But yeah. it wouldn't be a preferred choice. I think it's exciting that Doopy will be an option. And I've certainly used a variety of biologics in patients that present with more of the psoriasis-like. Yes. Um, yes. And, and IL, anti-IL 17s and 23s with not a whole lot of concern. I don't know if there's any evidence to suggest that one might be better than the other. I tend to avoid TNFs because my oncology and hemato-oncology colleagues go, maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting. You ask, you know, 10 different oncodermatologists, what biologic, what biologic category would you use for psoriasis or psoriasiform-induced immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, toxicity? and you'll get an equal split. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ask our rheumatology colleagues or our GI colleagues in terms of managing arthritis or colitis, they will always reach for a TNF-alpha inhibitor. Mm -hmm. But like, what is the name of Mm TNF-alpha? Tumor necrosis factor that you are then inhibiting. (laughs) It seems counterintuitive. I tend to avoid that. Um, but I have these debates. Uh, I agree the more targeted is better. Um, there's mixed evidence 
both ways in terms of there are case reports showing progression of disease on IL-17. Mm-hmm. There are case reports showing great response on IL-17, similarly with IL-23s. Um, IL-23s are now indicated for inflammatory bowel disease mm-hmm. in Canada and the U.S. Rizinkizumab is. <laughs> if we're going to get picky. Is. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and being investigated for the use of it. Colitis is a big issue with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So that may be one reason to sway away stone. from right. yeah, that's the a good 17s point. to the 23s. But I don't feel strongly. I personally tend to reach for the 23s more um, because I do think that they um, there's a little more. There, there's a couple extra benefits to it. I have similarly found, and this tends to be in, for whatever reason, metastatic renal cell carcinoma patients on Pembrol or whatever. Um, I also tend to find that psoriasis sometimes a little bit more stubborn and recalcitrant mm-hmm. requiring dose optimization yes. earlier on. Yes. You're having the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that it's, um, it's a hugely inflammatory, um, condition because you're literally, you know, putting your foot down on the gas pedal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, their, their psoriasis is going wild. So I do find that I need to dose optimize in this setting more frequently than I would in the say de novo setting. Okay. Uh, yeah. The autobahn of the immune response. Yeah. Although technically you're cutting the brakes, you're not pushing um, on the gas pedal. Okay. Well there, Never mind. There goes my, you're going down the hill. Okay. Before I let you go, I would like to cover one last topic and don't go anywhere yet. Okay. Uh, and, and you brought this up early on and, and, uh, and I think this is something that's really important to talk about because I don't think it's very well recognized. Couldn't really find any publications and we had a patient uh, that experienced this. So I'll tell you the, the patient that came in and then you tell me what, what parts of the clue that I missed. Um, so a lovely lady in her fifties, metastatic renal cell carcinoma, uh, managed on Pembro mid however many cycles uh, presented to the emergency room with a new eruption uh, complaint of skin pain but nothing mucosal eyes were totally clear no fever no blisters no detachment skin pain a little bit weird Um, so we saw the patient we said that's a little bit unusual we took a biopsy but we said, no, 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 this has been going on for 48 hours. It can't possibly be uh, toxic epidermal necrosis. Um, but for other reasons, she was dehydrated, got admitted, and we were able to monitor through the admission. To make a long story short, about 48 hours after that, she progressed uh, over that 48, peri- 48 hour period, significant involvement of skin, starting to develop some blisters. Then sort of two days after that developed mucosal um, erosions. And so was really looking now like TEN, which we obviously launched in and, and managed as such. But it was like an exceedingly slow moving TEN. And, and as a dermatologist that's had a fair amount of TEN, I didn't recognize it. So what can we do to not miss it? <laughs> First of all, for someone who's had quite a fair bit of TEN, you look great. Your skin looks great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scratch clarify. Seen a fair number of pages with TEN. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> um, yes. So there um, is this entity called PERM. Mm-hmm. 
progressive immune-related mucocutaneous eruption. Um, and it is almost like a walking SJSTN. Mm -hmm. These patients are remarkably well mm -hmm. compared to what you are looking at. Yeah. They often don't present with fever and it's often this slow rolling, um, you know, eruption. So I had an even slower one recently myself and Dr. Fournier, um, who's currently doing a fellowship with me. Okay. Um, and, uh, this woman presented in the winter with what looked like a morbilliform eruption. Mm-hmm. And she was paritic out of her mind. And I said, oh, it just looks like, like there's no danger signs here. It just looks like a morbilliform eruption. We'll treat you aggressively with topical steroids, antihistamines. Um, and she came back two weeks later and not better, maybe a little worse. But now when I look closely, she's starting to have skin detachment. Mm -hmm. No fever, no mucous membrane involvement. Um, and, uh, you know, we did a biopsy and we admitted her and I just like, I went down the path of treating her for SJSTEN, um, but never any fever, never any, um, mu uh, mucous membrane involvement. It's an entity. Mm -hmm. It's out there. Um, there are case reports on it. Uh, there were several sessions at the American Academy of Dermatology annual meeting this year, great sessions by some of my colleagues um, in the U.S. Uh, going over this. Uh, it often requires systemic steroids in higher doses mm -hmm. um, than what we typically um, would give. Mm -hmm. um, so generally like around 150 mm -hmm. milligrams mm -hmm. um, in order to get it under control. Uh, for this particular patient, I gave her high dose systemic steroids, um, and we also gave her a shot of a Tannercept, mm -hmm. and uh, then 48 hours later, another shot of a Tannercept. Yeah, and that halted everything, and she basically, very slowly over a two or three week period, improved her skin. Now we've talked earlier on about really trying to maintain patients on their immunotherapy, but I think in a case where you've developed a proper severe cutaneous adverse reaction, that that would probably require cessation of treatment going forward. For the most part, yes. Um, this reaction would more likely happen with dual Mm -hmm. uh, immune checkpoint inhibition. So with a CTLA-4 inhibitor and a PD-1 inhibitor. Um, again, it comes down to the case that's being presented in front of you. Mm -hmm. So if this was their only line of therapy left, you recovered, they were previously on dual checkpoint inhibition. If there wasn't anything else to do, you could have a discussion with oncology to try and rechallenge just with monotherapy. Mm -hmm. Try. We'll see. And, and this is where I think these particular cases very are very challenging and there's a lot at stake and you try to do the best that you can to maintain that anti-cancer effect. But recognizing that these are, these are very challenging decisions to make and discussions to have in the team-based approach, I think it's... Um, you need a multidisciplinary team yeah. for those decisions. Yeah. You need to um, have direct involvement with the medical oncology. And inappropriate, you know, I talked a lot about not using systemic steroids. In the appropriate condition, you must use them. 
where, where appropriate. And, yeah. and this is certainly one of them. And I would also argue that, you know, bullous pemphigoid, if it's uncontrolled with topicals, you need to, from a bridging standpoint, use systemic steroids. And not to backtrack to, to our that pemphigoid piece again, but I think uh, probably again, likely higher doses my patient didn't respond mm-hmm. to 50 had to put him on 100 yeah uh, makes a just to get that response that you nor- that i would normally get in pemphigoid patients at a 50 milligram dose yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. um so yeah listen max thank you so much for taking the time i think this was a ton of awesome information uh, i know the residents are going to learn a lot and i really appreciate you taking time out of the conference to sit down and talk to me thanks for having me thanks for thinking of me And thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and write a review where you listen. It helps others to find these interviews. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out the JCMS author interviews hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kirk Barber. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.